All right, would you please go ahead and make your way back to your seat? And as you do so, grab your Bible. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there are some on the back table, and would love for you to go ahead and pick one of those up. And uh, if you don't have a Bible at all, we would be thrilled for you to take that Bible home with you and uh, read it regularly. Um, my name is Nathan Smith. I'm one of the three pastors here, and uh, it is my privilege to bring the Word of God to you this morning. And uh, as Pastor Steve mentioned a little bit ago, we are going to be beginning a new sermon series through the book of Hebrews this morning. So if you are uh, not familiar with the scriptures, you might want to go ahead and start searching for the book of Hebrews. It is towards the back, so you, uh, you can go ahead and, and get there. Um, but we will probably, as we go through this sermon series, uh, adjust our preaching schedule and how we have it broken down. But right now we have it broken down into about 57 messages. Uh, so we're going to be in Hebrews for a while, but um, there's only 13 chapters, so you can tell by the, the ratio there that for uh, many of those sermons, most of those sermons actually, we're going to be just preaching a few verses. Um, but that's not what I'm going to do today. Today, I'm going to be preaching on the overall theme of the letter, just by way of introduction to the letter, and praying that God would prepare our hearts through this introduction to receive this, this word from Him. And the way that we've summarized the overall theme of this letter, uh, it's the title of this message, it's the main, uh, it's the heart of this message, and it's the phrase that we're going to come back to over and over again as we preach through this book. It's this phrase that's on the screen. Hold fast by faith in our superior Savior. Hold fast by faith in our superior Savior. And there is more that the book of Hebrews says than that. It doesn't all fit, all the content of Hebrews doesn't fit neatly into that summary. But we believe that that does communicate the, the core message of the book of Hebrews, and hopefully we've worded that in a way that it conveys something of the urgent necessity of, of doing that, of holding fast by faith in our superior Savior. So you notice it's not just a statement that you should hold fast. It's an imperative. It's a, it's a command. It's hold fast by faith. And we intentionally phrased it that way because we hope that that communicates something, something of the overarching tone of the book of Hebrews, because there's an urgent tone to this book. And I want to try to help you get a sense of that urgency. Um, imagine, and this might not be hard for some of you because uh, you've probably had this, some of this experience, but imagine that you're on a float trip. We have a lot of rivers in Missouri, so... I imagine that many of you have been on a float trip, whether you took the, the cruise down on the inner tubes or you had an inflatable raft or canoes, whatever. You've probably been on some kind of float trip. Well, imagine that you're on a float trip, you're in a raft, um, you and another person, and uh, it's, maybe it's springtime. You're out on the rivers, the rivers are a little swollen because it's been raining. Um, you've been out all day and sunburned, tired, it's getting dark, you haven't made it to your pull-out point yet because you stopped too many times and, uh, you know, hung out on the sandbar, swung off the rope swing or whatever. You're not to your takeout point yet and it's getting dark and then because it's dark, you don't see this coming, but there's 
you go over a waterfall because there's actually a small dam. The river's swollen, so it's overflowing the dam. You hit the other side, your raft tips, all your stuff goes out. You have a life jacket on, but you're in the water. And because the water's pouring over this dam, you get caught in this whirlpool. So the water falling over makes this vortex. There's actually a back current that keeps pulling you underneath this water that's pouring over the dam and that's pouring over your head. You're gasping for breath. You're struggling to stay up. You're calling for help. You're... Your, your partner with you, your spouse or whoever it is, they can't get out either because the current's just as strong for them. You're both struggling. You're yelling for help. And you're gasping for breath. With fear starting to mount up because you realize this is, this is serious. We can't get out of this. Even though you have a life jacket, the water's coming down on your head. It's pushing you under. You're struggling for breath. Well, this actually happened to a couple in Des Moines, Iowa a couple of years ago. And um, they did shout. Some people heard him. They called 911, and some police officers showed up, and somehow they got a hold of a rope. And so one of the police officers, as he lowers the rope down to, uh, it was a couple, he lowers the rope down to this woman. She's hanging on to it, and he has his body cam on. So there's footage of this, actually, that you can watch. And he lowers this rope down to her, and she's, she's been in the water for a long time. And as he's holding on to it, trying to get her to a place where he can pull her out. He's, he keeps shouting to her, hold on, hold on to the rope. Don't let go. Grab on with both hands. Don't let go. Whatever you do, don't let go of the rope. And that is what the message of the book of Hebrews is like. It's like that police officer urging that woman to hold on to that rope. He writes as if there's no time to be delicate or gentle. He's very direct. He doesn't beat around the bush. He's urgently crying out, hold fast to Jesus by faith. And you might be thinking, well, I've already believed in Jesus. So why is it so urgent that I hold fast to Jesus? I've already, I've believed I'm, I'm, I'm good to go, right? Why is it so urgent? Well, I hope to answer that question today in a way that you, that you see it in Scripture, that you feel it, and that you respond to that urgent call today as you hear this message and throughout our study of the book of Hebrews. So please go ahead and open up to Hebrews chapter 11. <clears throat> And then would you join me in prayer? Almighty, saving God, I pray that you will work powerfully through your word to do your saving work today. We are in desperate need of you to lift up the feeble hands of our faith, to strengthen our weak knees, and so that we may continue holding fast to Jesus. Help us to feel that we have an urgent need to hold more tightly to Jesus. Enable us today, Lord, to hold fast to him by seeing his all-surpassing glory, the glory of your Son. We pray in his name. Amen. So we don't know who the author of Hebrews is. So if you're waiting 
for that to be announced today. If you studied Hebrews at all, you probably know that there's some debate and maybe you're waiting for your pastors to make a pronouncement from on high about who the author of Hebrews is. Well, that's not going to happen because uh, many suggestions have been made about that, but none of those are conclusive. And so we are not going to uh, speculate and make those speculations sound as if they are conclusive because they're not. Um, it's just unknown. <clears throat> but, uh, in fact, we actually don't know the certainty of all the, uh, the specifics of the intended audience, the, the intended original recipients of this writing. But there are certain things, like the fact that the writer expected them to be very familiar with the Old Testament, that makes it very likely that this was written to Greek-speaking Jews. Probably some people who were Jews by birth, some others who were Jews by conversion. That these were Jews who had received the good news that their long-awaited Messiah had come, that his name was Jesus, they had believed in him. Um, that's probably who this was written to, and uh, this is what the early church believed about the original recipients of this letter. So the oldest manuscripts have a, a heading like Hebrews or uh, letter to the Hebrews, something like that. And so that's, that's why we have this in our modern translations as well. Uh, and I think it's likely that the Jewish converts to Christianity that this was written to were located in the city of Rome, uh, that it was written and they received it in the late 60s AD when persecution of the church in Rome had started to intensify um, some of these things are likely, but these details aren't certain. But more importantly, we do know about the kind of writing that Hebrews is. In chapter 13, in verse 22, the author calls it a brief word of exhortation. A brief word of exhortation. And that word exhortation is a term that uh, it's used elsewhere in the New Testament to speak of sermons. So an exhortation, we use that in different ways, but in the New Testament, that word was, was often used to refer to sermons. And in fact, if you read through Hebrews, it reads like a sermon. The author repeatedly gives uh, an exposition of Scripture and then makes some applications from that exposition. And so this is pretty clearly a sermon, and it doesn't have the traditional salutation that a letter would have. And yet, if you go to the end of the book, it it does look like a letter. The, the end of it reads kind of like a letter. And so um, this has often been called a sermonic letter. And uh, for that reason, we, as we preach through it, we'll sometimes refer to it as a letter. Sometimes we'll refer to it as a sermon. And because we are pretty certain that the church that received this letter or sermon, that they were Jewish converts to Christianity, we can understand some of the pressures that they were uh, facing things that were threatening to loosen their grasp on Jesus. I mean, certainly these saints felt pressure from their own past religious experience as Jews. Uh, and we know this because the bulk of this sermon to the Hebrews is spent in, in showing that Jesus is superior to everyone and everything that the Jewish people had put their hopes in. Jesus is superior to the prophets, to angels, to the high priest, to Moses, to Joshua, superior to the sacrificial system, superior to the, uh, the old covenant as a whole. Even, the author says, Jesus is superior to a renewed Jewish kingdom. And so 
the people first reading this letter were used to a religion of, of sight, of taste, with the, the, the sacrifices, the, the washings, the incense. They were even used to a religion of smell. They were used to a religion of very tangible things. But now by believing in Jesus, they had been called into a, 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 a walk of faith. They had been called away from those tangible things things that they could see. So they were no longer walking in sight, but were walking in faith. And it seems that some of them, or maybe many of them, were wanting to return to some of their old rites and rituals. Maybe they were longing for something that was a little more sight and a little less faith, something more tangible and more visible than uh, a Jesus who had ascended. Maybe they were just wanting to go back to what was familiar and comfortable, and maybe they didn't want to abandon Jesus altogether. Maybe they were trying to kind of hold on to him with one hand and hold on to some of the old religious practices with the other hand. And so this loving pastoral author writes to them, urging them, don't do this. He says that the whole Old Covenant system, it's been made obsolete because it was just a pointer towards what was to come fully in Christ. All of that in the Old Testament, all of that was a shadow, but Jesus is the substance. And he goes to great lengths to show them that even under the Old Covenant, faith was the crucial element. It wasn't the tangible things. It wasn't, it wasn't the offerings. It wasn't the washings. It wasn't the incense that was essential. It was faith. Those who benefited from those things, and they did, but they benefited from them only because they receive them by faith. So let's look in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. It's a very familiar passage. It simply says, Without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And if we ask, what is faith? Well, we back up a little bit to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. We see a very simple definition, basic definition. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And faith is so crucial that the author of this letter hammers it home by using that phrase, by faith, 20 times in the letter. Over and over again, he says, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. It's by faith. Many of those are in chapter 11, but not all of them. He wants the readers to understand that they hold fast by faith, not by rituals. And so what about you? Is faith in Jesus where you have pinned all of your hopes for life and death? Or are you tempted to maybe try to hang on to Jesus with one hand, but find some hope in the more tangible things of this world as well? Or maybe just finding some of your joy and your peace in things of this world instead of holding tightly to Jesus alone? Or maybe you come from a religious background that really emphasize rituals and, um, and rites, or even like Catholicism, maybe you came from that background, which teaches that 
uh, sacred physical objects actually have saving power. Well, God urges you through this letter of Hebrews and the rest of the Bible, don't try going back to those things. They are obsolete. There's no saving power in any of them. The Holy Spirit is urging you to hold fast by faith alone to Jesus. And as I mentioned a bit ago, we don't know many of the details about the first readers of this letter or, or about the author, but the far more important thing that we can deduce from the contents of the letter is why this was written, which tells us why it's still relevant for us. And one of the clues as to the why is this often repeated phrase throughout this letter, hold fast, and other phrases that have the same meaning but are slightly different. So apparently the writer of Hebrews wrote because he knew that these Christians were in danger, in danger of, of loosening or maybe even letting go completely of their grip on Jesus. And in this, this was not un- unique to them. This is a danger that all Christians throughout all history have faced, including us today. It's, it's the same danger that each believer in this room faces. We must hold fast to Jesus, and we need to be reminded and urged to do so. And if we don't think that it is urgent that we hear this, that we must hold fast, well, the writer of Hebrews gives a number of reasons why it is so very urgent that we hold fast and continue holding fast. And the first is simply that there are a lot of temptations to let go. And just like us, these saints face pressure. They face the pressure of the world. Hebrews 12, 4 says, In your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And that struggle against sin, I think, is um, intended to talk about really the whole struggle of faith. It's not just personal sin, but, but sin in the world. All these pressures that would cause us to turn away from Jesus and turn towards sin. There's this struggle, but it... He says, in that struggle, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And so at this point, whether it was in Rome or wherever it was located, the persecution of this church, it hadn't reached the point where Christians were actually being killed for their faith. But we know that all Christians, pretty much in the early church, faced economic pressure. Some of them lost their jobs or um, means of income There was because there was a reluctance to do business with Christians. They were mocked and belittled. In some places, they were outcasts. They faced social pressure, and especially, you can imagine the social pressure from uh, the families of these Jewish converts to Christianity because their families thought that they had abandoned the true God, and they, they were worshiping now a human, that they were worshiping some guy named Jesus, or that they had put their hope in a false Messiah, at least, that they were being deceived. And so pressure from family members, thinking they had abandoned the true faith. But then also they lived in a Roman-influenced culture. And that culture increasingly saw Christians as a danger to the social order. Um, This Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, the Christians were seen as having such different views and beliefs that they were a danger. They were threatening kind of to tear apart the fabric of society. They stood in opposition 
to the values of the broader culture. And so for the Christians, their beliefs wouldn't allow them to take part in many of the uh, normal social, uh, civic and social activities because those involved idol worship. Their valuing of all human life forbade them from discarding unwanted babies as those around them often did. And their restricting of sex to the bond of marriage put them directly at odds with the practices of their day. So economic, relational, societal pressure to abandon their faith. I think that all sounds very familiar, doesn't it? All of these can tempt us to loosen our grip on Jesus. In addition to these pressures, they were also, these are kind of external pressures, but they were also tempted to loosen their grip on Jesus by their own personal dullness and weariness. Hebrews 5.11 says, About this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing, which indicates that at one point they were sharper of hearing. They were eager to hear. Their ears were, were in tune with the things of God, but they become dull of hearing. And then Hebrews 12, starting in verse 12, he exhorts them, Therefore lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. So they had a dullness of heart and mind towards the things of God, a weariness with standing up to the cultural current that was constantly beating against them, the slow erosion of joy and hope in God, because the crashing waves of life just keep eroding that bank out from under them. Do you feel that? Do you just feel the grind of life sometimes wearing down your hope, your joy, your faith? I want you to hear the urgent cry of your Savior. You must hold fast to me. You must hold fast. And that phrase, hold fast, it's not one that we chose at random. It's sprinkled five times throughout this letter. And two of those times in particular really demonstrate the urgency of this command. So let's turn to chapter 3. Hebrews 3, verse 6. <clears throat> this is actually the second half of the verse. Well, I'll start at the beginning. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. And look down to verse 14. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold fast our original confidence, firm to the end. If, notice the word if, these are conditional statements telling us that we will receive an, inher- an eternal inheritance in Christ only if we hold fast all the way to the end. Your perseverance all the way to the end of the race is the ultimate and most sure evidence that you are indeed a child of God. Which is why we read in Hebrews 10:36. Um, the writer says, we have 
need of endurance. He says, you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. You have need of endurance, um, <clears throat> which brought to mind a, uh, an, a happening in my life when I was in high school. Um, so I, I didn't play any sports. It might not surprise you that I focused more on music, and actually I did some, some musical drama as well. Um, but my junior and senior year, for whatever reason, I decided to play some sports, and um, I played a little bit of football, and I ran track. And uh, my football coach was, was super encouraging. At one point in my junior year, he was like, you know, I'm glad you came out for football. You're, uh, you're pretty fast, and you're kind of athletic. It's like... <laughs> Vote of confidence. Thanks. Um, so I was kind of pretty fast. So I ran track, and um, I, if if I remember all this correctly, uh, I didn't I didn't receive much coaching. It was just kind of like, hey, go out there and run. You know, when you hear the starting pistol, just go run and run as fast as you can. So at at some point. The coach decided to put me in the 4x400 relay, which is, um, it's a relay where you, you have four members of the team, they pass the baton around, and each of them has to run 400 meters, which is one lap around the track, which doesn't sound so bad, right? You got to run out a dead out sprint. So, and I hadn't trained for this. He puts me in it, and we're at, we're at our home, home track, whatever. So there are people that know me in the stands is the important thing. So... If I remember this correctly, uh, the other three guys on the team were fast, and we were leading by the time I got the baton. You know where this is going. So I get the baton. I start running, and I'm pretty fast, right? So around the first turn, feeling pretty good. And you always feel good on the turns. It just makes you feel faster. So I'm running around the turn, <clears throat> feeling good, getting into that back stretch over there, and somebody's creeping up on me. So I'm getting a little tired because... I'm used to the short sprint, and I was, I was pretty good at the short sprint, but there's people creeping up on me. Okay, I get passed by one person. I'm running down that straight, feeling a little tired, getting passed by another person, and uh, I'll spare you all the gory details, but as I come around that final turn into the home stretch, I'm just dead. My legs are fried. They're burning. I feel like I can barely even walk, much less run, so I'm just stumbling my way in front of the crowd as they're all screaming for me to, I don't know what they expected because it was obvious it was going to take a miracle. Everybody, if I remember this right, everyone passed me. We came in dead last and I just died right in front of everyone across the finish line. I made it, but it was embarrassing. And <clears throat> the point here is that I had some speed, but I had need of endurance. What I did not have was endurance for that race. And I wonder if you started well at a dead sprint on the race of faith. Maybe you started out with a deep burning love for Jesus. You had just this humble gratitude for his grace. You had this burning passion in your heart to glorify God because he had saved you. Maybe you remember spending hours in his word, just pouring over it. Not because you felt like you had to, but because you just wanted to know Jesus more. You wanted to know how to serve him. You know, wanted to know how to please him. You wanted to know what he was calling you to. If you remember that, do you still feel it? 
or have the burdens and pains of life thrown some water on those fires? Has the day-to-day grind sapped the strength out of the legs of your faith? You have need of endurance. Keep running the race. Keep pressing on towards the goal. And it's urgent that you do because this isn't some high school race where it's only your pride on the line. Let's turn over to chapter 2. This is where we see the intense urgency with which the writer of Hebrews writes. Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Chapter 3 and verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Chapter 6, starting in verse 4. For it is impossible, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. This is why the tone of this letter is so urgent. You must hold fast to Jesus because there is a deadly spiritual danger in loosening your grip. If you don't hold on to Him with everything in you, if you don't keep a constant, unwavering diligence, you are in danger of being swept under and lost forever. In the face of the floods of temptation to let go of Jesus as you grow weary of fighting and you just want to stop, you just want to go with the flow of the world, in the face of the threat of drowning in unbelief, this is an urgent exhortation to hold on. Don't let go. Cling tightly with both hands. Cling with a vice-like grip to your Savior. Refasten your grip if you feel it slipping. Hold on because he is our superior savior. That woman struggling in the water that I told you about at the beginning, I realized I didn't tell you what happened. Um, she lived. That's the short version of it. It was a, it was a happy ending. She, she held on and she was pulled from the water. But there's something in that story that I want to go back to because it's so obvious, it's easy to miss. And that's that the officer was urging her to hold on because he was assuming the woman wanted to live. Right? He didn't spend any time asking her, hey, do, do you want this rope? Do you want to hold on to it? Do you want me to pull you out? He, he just, 
He didn't try to convince her that she should hold on. He, that's not, not what he was doing. He just assumed it. He assumed that she wanted to live, and so he's confident that she knew she needed this rope. And so he's actually just urgently reminding her when he's saying, hold on, don't let go. He's, he's just reminding her to do what she already desperately knows that she needs to do. And I think like that police officer holding the rope, the author of Hebrews makes an assumption about those that he's writing to. He assumes that they understand that the reason the, the law, the sacrifices, the rituals, the priestly office, he, he, he expects that they realize why these were all necessary under the old covenant. He assumes that they understand humanity's greatest problem and greatest need. And if we're going to benefit from the book of Hebrews, we need to know that as well. And we need to not only know it, but to feel it. The assumption the writer of the Hebrews makes is that those who hear this message want to get to God and they know that they can't make that happen on their own. He assumes that they want to get to God and they know that they can't make that happen on their own. So what were all those Old Testament people and ceremonies that Jesus is compared to for? What, what were those things aiming at? They aimed at making it possible for sinful humans to draw near to a holy God without being consumed by his wrath. You must hold fast by faith to our superior Savior because it's, the only, it's only through him that you have access to God. And so if you don't desire to know God, if you don't treasure God, you don't find your highest joy in God, if you don't look forward to heaven because it's there that you'll be with God, then you won't see the superiority of Jesus. So what kind of Savior do you want? You might not want the kind of Savior that Jesus actually is. This might shock you to hear, but Jesus is not superior at everything. Some people say that Jesus was the, and I think they say these things with good intentions, but they say things like, well, Jesus was the best communicator that ever lived. Or Jesus was a carpenter, so he had to have been the best carpenter who ever lived. Nothing that he ever made ever broke or went wrong. He had the best plans. Or if Jesus had been alive today and played sports, Jesus would have been an all-star. Well, that's all nonsense. The Bible doesn't make those kinds of claims about Jesus. So what is Jesus superior at? For saying he's superior, what is he better at than anyone else? Well, let me first tell you what Jesus is not superior at. Jesus isn't superior at making you comfortable with your sin. Jesus isn't superior at helping you avoid the painful consequences of foolish decisions or sinful actions. Jesus isn't superior at making you free to do whatever feels best to you at the moment. He isn't superior at making you fit comfortably into the world or at helping you store up treasures on earth or at giving you perfect health or at keeping you from relational sorrows or at keeping you from the pain of loss. Jesus is not superior at giving you your best life now. And I tell you this in love, if that's the kind of Savior you want, then you actually don't want Jesus. But over and over and over, the writer of Hebrews tells us what Jesus is superior at, and it's glorious. 
Jesus is superior at upholding the universe. Jesus is superior at speaking God's word of truth. Jesus is superior at being the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Jesus is superior at being the eternally sufficient sacrifice for our sins. Jesus is superior at sealing us into covenant fellowship with God. Jesus is superior at saving to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. He's superior at making intercession before the throne of God for his people. He's superior at securing an eternal redemption for his people. He's superior at purifying our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. He's superior at saving those who are eagerly waiting for his return. He's superior at perfecting for all time those who are being sanctified. Jesus is superior at giving us confidence to enter into the holy places and draw near to God. He's superior at delivering us from the fear of death. He's superior at sympathizing with us, helping us when we are tempted. He's superior at setting us an example of running the race of faith with endurance for the joy set before us. He's superior at enabling us to be content with what we have, for he will never forsake us, for he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's superior at presenting our praises and good deeds as sacrifices acceptable to God. And Jesus is superior at giving us a sure hope that we will enter into a better country, the heavenly city that God has prepared for those who love him. In short, Jesus is superior at bringing us to God. That's what he is superior at. He is a superior savior. And so this is what the Holy Spirit is calling us to ask ourselves about the superiority of Jesus as we study Hebrews. Do I want Jesus if the only thing he is superior at is bringing me to God? Because through Jesus, we gain access to God, who the psalmist says is our exceeding joy. But is God your exceeding joy? Because if he's not, then you're going to be disappointed with Jesus. If God isn't your exceeding joy, then you're going to find our study of Hebrews boring or just kind of maybe theologically or um, literarily interesting but it's not going to have any power in your life. So this is the deeper reality that the writer of Hebrews expects you to understand as you approach this book. It's that your deepest problem is that your sin has separated you from God. You need an eternal sacrifice to make a payment for your sins. You need a Savior who can bring you to God. And you might say, well, I thought Jesus gave us eternal life. I thought that's what it meant to be saved. Jesus does give eternal life, but eternal life isn't just life unending. In fact, all of humanity will have that. Scripture tells us that at the judgment, all who have died will rise again to life unending. But for some, in fact, for many, that life unending will be spent in torment. It will be more like eternal death. So if eternal life isn't just life unending, what is it? Jesus says in John 17, this is eternal life, that you know God and Jesus Christ, whom God has sent. This is eternal life, that you know God. Eternal life is the everlasting experience of enjoying God. 
And so Jesus prays for us later on in that same chapter in, in John. He doesn't pray that, that Christians would have their best life now, but instead he prays that we will one day be with God so that we will see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We are created to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. This is what eternal life is. And so why the urgency to hold fast? Why learn through the book of Hebrews about how Jesus fulfills all of these things from the Old Testament that we're going to be learning about? It's because Jesus brings us to God, and that's what the book of Hebrews shows us. And so if you treasure God, if he is your greatest joy, then receive the warnings and the commands of Hebrews gladly. Receive them as one who feels caught in this vortex of of life that's pummeling you, threatening to drown you. Receive these words from the book of Hebrews as that voice from above saying, hold on, hold fast, don't let go. Hold fast to your superior Savior by faith. And this morning we are going to, as we do each week, take communion. And I love that we do this every week because it brings us back to this over and over again, that Jesus is the one who brings us to God. He is a superior Savior. Reminds us of the great barrier to God that our sin has created, and it assures us that by his death on the cross, which is represented by the bread and the juice, it's his broken body and his shed blood shed on the cross that we have pictured for us every week in communion. And by that work on the cross, Christ has broken down the barrier of our sin so that we can now draw near to God with full assurance of faith because now the throne of God has become for us a throne of grace where God eagerly dispenses to his children gracious gifts. Gracious gifts, all that we need to sustain us in this journey of faith. All that we need to continue holding fast to Jesus. And so, if you are trusting in Jesus, if you are holding fast to him by faith alone, then uh, in just a few minutes, I invite you to stand. You'll exit to your left. You'll come up to one of these tables in the front and take your um, communion elements that are gluten-free over here on this side. Take them. You can head back around and enter back to your seat on the right side. You can take communion there by yourself or with your family or or with others around you. But I encourage you to see this as an opportunity to once again refasten your grip on Jesus. To be reminded that your hope is, it's in him alone. Even these communion elements, as important and significant as they are, they don't save us unless... We receive them. They don't even benefit us unless we receive them by faith. It's our faith in Jesus. And so if you don't have faith in Jesus, then please don't come this morning to take communion. Um, I'll be down here in front. If if you want to speak with me, I would love love to be able to pray with you. Or you can speak with one of the other pastors or any believer here that you may know about what it means to have this hope in Jesus. Or you can write on a connection card that you'd like to talk with someone and put it in the uh, box in the back, and we'll connect with you this week. Um, I'm going to pray, and then those who should come, please come and receive the gift of communion.
Lord God, we, we are so, so weak. We talk about holding on. We confess that it is only by the strength that you supply, and there is great mystery in this, that we hold on, yet it's with your strength. But God, we trust your word, and we trust in you. We trust in your sovereign power. We trust in your faithfulness to your covenant promises, that if we trust in Jesus, that you will save us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for being our faithful Savior. We thank you for your obedience, even unto death on the cross. Holy Spirit, strengthen now the church of Christ to continue holding fast to our Savior. He is our only hope, and we pray in his name. Amen.